Good morning. I want to invite you to join me in Colossians chapter 3. I'll tell you that we are going to drop it down into low gear a bit for the next few weeks. Um, as we enter into this section of Colossians, the next 17, let me try and adjust that, how's that? The next 17 verses of Colossians are going to be sort of Paul transitioning away from this warning of the false teaching to him telling us what it means to actively, positively pursue Christ. To, to let go of the false teaching and to instead embrace what is true. So over the ne- these next 17 verses, he's going to tell us what that practically means. We'll take four sermons to cover those. Uh, starting this morning with verses 1 through 4. As we prepare to turn to this word, let me ask the Lord's blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Would you bow with me? Father, this is your word, and every bit of it is true. More true than we often are willing to embrace, or more true than we can often see through our, uh, our fallen lives. So would you impress this truth on our hearts that we might not only see it and hear it, but that we might embrace it, embracing our place in Christ Jesus. Do this we ask in his name. Amen. Friends, this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is the word of the Lord. Have you ever noticed that at times, some of the most competent, the most winsome, the most gifted people around can paradoxically be the most insecure. I see it in my ministry. I see it in my various relationships in life that there is this disconnect at times between what we believe about ourselves and what is actually most true. Think of the prettiest girl in the school who can alternately be the most needy or can be the most painfully reserved. Think about the singer who has a certain gifting but will only sing out loud by themselves in the car. (laughs) not willing to listen to what is most true. <laughs> we, we all have examples, and maybe we are a living example ourselves, of this disconnect between what we believe about ourselves and what is most true. And so we can think that uh, it is awfully tempting that if we would simply correct the wrong thinking, that if we could make someone see who they are, make someone realize their gifting, then all of this insecurity would be fixed. We'd be tempted to think it's just simply a matter 
wrong thinking, but you probably, like me, are saying, oh, if it were only that simple. The truth is, simple may be the wrong term. Easy certainly is not the right term. But at its core, there is an issue of embracing reality. This core, what this text is telling us, that as Christians we are called to live out of our true identity, what is most true of us. The scripture tells us that what is most true of us, what is most core to our identity, is who we are in Christ. So it calls us to live out of that reality of our union. The text opens. If then you have been raised with Christ. There is a thread that goes throughout this book that speaks to the all-sufficiency of Christ and our union in Him as the protection against the false teaching that abounds in this world. And so that thread of if then you have been raised, maybe if you have been listening over the past couple of weeks, you'll have heard that thread continued throughout. We heard it in Chapter 2, verse 12, where Paul said that you having been raised with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful works of God who raised him from the dead. And then again, clarifying in verse 20 of chapter 2, if with Christ you have died to the elemental spirits of the world. But we know that he is writing to believers And so he writes to believers and then he opens up this section, which we have said tells us how to positively resist the false teaching. He opens it with if, we need to understand that if is a presumptive if. (laughs) This is what I mean by a presumptive if. He is presuming that he's speaking to Christians. He is presuming That the Christian has been raised with Christ. But with that presumption comes a challenge. If this is really true of you, then do this. And so in verses 1 and 2, he offers two do's. I know, we'll get to the paradox between the do's and don'ts of last week and this do. But if... You have been raised with Christ, there is a challenge. Do two things, and the first thing he tells us to do is to seek the things that are above. This seek means to actively pursue, and to do so with a persevering effort. You've got to fight through this as we seek. We give ourselves over to this seeking completely this seeking isn't it's not merely to discover something new it's to actually obtain something but what are we to obtain what is he pointing us to in this text well he speaks of the things that are above where christ is seated at the right hand of god we're to seek heavenly things Things in the heavenly realm. Things that make the heavenly realm so wonderful. What are those things? Those things are not merely streets 
of gold and gates made of pearl. Though for many of us that seems to mark our seeking in this world. Those, those, those golden things. But what is most wonderful about heaven? It is being in the very presence of Jesus. He's telling us to seek Jesus in his heavenly realm, to seek the glory of God in the person of Jesus, to seek perfect things, holy things, pure things, clean things, sinless things. He's telling us to seek Christ and to seek Christ-likeness. Jesus talks about this in the Sermon on the Mount when he, when he tells us to seek first the kingdom of God. And then Paul continues to build on it by saying that seeking first the kingdom of God is to live a life worthy of his name. It's seeking the things above. It's to daily pursue Christ, to daily hold fast to Christ. But don't be surprised when this seeking, this pursuit is opposed that opposition, we, we have an enemy, friends. Don't be deceived. And when we go hard after Christ, it will be opposed. Part of the opposition we've already spoken to is this disconnect between what we perceive to be true about ourselves and what is most true. The opposition, the enemy, I'll tell you, that's not you. That's not the real you. And those of us who, uh, well, there are those of us who, when that opposition comes, we buy into it. And we stop our pursuit. But the text is telling us to push through, to push through the opposition when it comes. Another part of the opposition is the accusing opposition that says, hey, how is this do different from the do's and don'ts? You told us about last week. Because we rejected last week a series of do's and don'ts. Here's the difference. This do. This do is rooted in the heart. This seeking is not merely an external. This seeking is a seeking of the heart. It's rooted in the heart and it has basis outside of self. It has basis in Christ and our union in Him. So the Christian, the Christian is simply someone who has been graciously granted relationship with Jesus Christ, the exalted Jesus Christ. And so Paul's telling us pursue Him, pursue that relationship, develop it with everything you have. That's the first do. It's the first challenge that comes with this presumptive if. But there's a second in verse 2. Because he builds on uh, seeking the things that are above by telling us to set your minds on the things that are above. He's telling us to seek Christ with a renewed mind. He's telling us to think deeply about Jesus. And in thinking deeply about Jesus, his person, his works, his attributes, that that, that is to revel in him. 
Now, when we come to this thinking deeply about Jesus, this setting our minds on the things that are above, there, there can be two opposite errors that arise. And both of these opposite errors are tools of the opposition. The first of those is to set our minds on the things of heaven purely for the sake of knowledge. It's knowledge for the sake of knowledge. And we heard last week that that has the effect of puffing oneself up. Making this knowledge about self. But there is there's an opposite error related to setting our minds on the things above, of thinking deeply, and that is this. Don't, don't, don't make me do the hard work of thinking. I just want simple Jesus. Simple Jesus and simply me, and I'm going to stay on the surface. But that emptiness leads us to error and causes us to miss out on the glory of Christ. Paul tells us to set our minds on the things above because when we do this, when we think deeply about Jesus, our love grows deeper, our roots grow deeper, our life begins to reflect Christ as we grow in Christ-likeness. So I ask you, how much do you meditate on heaven? How much do you meditate on the things above? I take some responsibility for that as I recognize and have recognized this week just how little my preaching ministry has focused on the glory of heaven. And I ask you to forgive me that we have not gone to the beauty and glory of heaven, the glory that awaits us. I take some responsibility for this, but what is your role? What is your role in not meditating on the things of heaven? Are the things of earth more real to you than things of heaven? Could that be it? Where are the areas in your life that you've settled? Friends, actively set your mind on Christ and on the things of heaven. This is the message here, but some of us hear that and wonder, is he simply saying this is a call to the power of positive thinking. <laughs> we simply set our mind on happy thoughts. Will there be something that follows it? What's, what's going on here? Um, again, we talked about the disconnect that exists between what we believe about self and and what is really true. And, and so some are hearing this call to set our minds on the things above in the middle of that disconnect. And we can't get past uh, what is going on in our own hearts. Some of us can't get to the what's really true part for a variety of reasons. Now, I've come to see and understand anxiety. by those I love and their experience of anxiety. Anxiety is a real struggle. And for some, that anxiety has roots in brain chemistry. 
For some, anxiety has roots in, in what you have been told by others. And for some, anxiety has its roots in long-held thought patterns that are inward in their direction. And that anxiety, regardless of its basis, tends to fuel an endless cycle of hyper-focus that we, as best we try, can't seem to break. And so some of you are in the middle of that hyper-focus cycle, that gerbil wheel, and you hear, think on the things of heaven, and you say, James, I can't. It sounds great, but I can't break out of this cycle. Some of you are stuck on that gerbil wheel of doubt and insecurity and anxiety and you're asking, where is the hope? The struggle is real. It is. And I affirm it. The word seems to affirm it. Paul seems to affirm it here. He's not putting forward a a two-step magical formula of seek and set. Yet at the same time, though it is not a magical formula, if we simply do this, the end result will be freedom from the anxiety. We still cling to the biblical wisdom. And so caught on that gerbil wheel, maybe the the first step that we take is that we remind ourselves that this is not a me-focused effort. That that seeking the things above, that setting my mind on the things above is not a me-focused effort, but it is done in union with Christ. So set your mind to know that Jesus is with you even on the gerbil wheel. Even when you can't get out of that endless cycle, Jesus is with you in it. The false teaching would tell you that your relationship with Jesus is dependent upon your external behavior. That when you get your act cleaned up, then you will have relationship. That is the false teaching that we talked about last week. And friends, it is powerless. But the truth of union in Christ, that Jesus is with you even on the gerbil wheel of hyperfocus. Jesus is with you. You are still united to Christ even when you don't feel like it. And so the first step is reminding yourself of that beautiful truth. But here's the second. As you set your mind on the things above. As you set your mind on the heavenly realm, see yourself in it. See yourself in the heavenly realm and let that vision give you the ability to see the glory of God in this world. Let the vision of your place with Jesus, of Him taking you out of what you can't seem to break free from today, let the power of that vision of you being with Him in glory give you hope for today so with persevering effort live now out of what is most true and what is most true is your union in Christ that was the call when Paul opened this text with a presumptive if but here and in all of scripture every time there's a call to do something that call to do is rooted in the gospel reminder of being, of who we are in Christ. So in verse 3, 
Paul moves from the presumptive to the declarative. Verse 3 no longer starts out with an if, it starts out with a for. (laughs) Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's calling us to rest, to rest in the reality of our union. This union, as you've heard over the past couple of chapters, is, is spoken of in terms of our union with Christ in, uh, here in verse 1 in, in his resurrection and here in verse 3 in his uh, death. But the union and death and union and resurrection are used almost interchangeably within these couple of chapters. And in this interchangeableness of death and resurrection, it's pointing to our oneness. Our oneness with Jesus. A oneness that here in this verse is further described as being hidden with Christ in God. That that might possibly be the the most foundational statement of this passage. Maybe the most foundational statement of the whole book. But what does it mean? It's beautiful, isn't it? But maybe you scratch your head trying to figure out what does it mean to be hidden with Christ. Psalm 27 was the passage that we look to for our call to worship. I hope you see and understand that our worship each and every week is shaped by the text. And, and in Psalm 27 is it's a psalm of David who was struggling at times in his life with very real, very tangible threats to his life, sometimes at the, at the hands of, of kings, sometimes at the hands of his own family members. He would sing in Psalm 27, He will hide me in his shelter. It's the truth that David saying of a truth that that led us in to worship this morning David would say these words he will hide me in his shelter looking forward but Paul echoes that sentiment knowing that he is Jesus that Jesus is our shelter. Jesus is the one who hides us in himself. Jesus is our protector. To be hidden with Christ is to be protected with Christ, in Christ. So do you believe that? Do you believe the word? Do you believe that you are spiritually protected in Christ and How does that belief translate when you're stuck on the gerbil wheel of fear? Does it give you freedom? How about the truth that you are not alone? Do you see that Paul keeps going back to that truth? He keeps going back to who we are in Christ, what we have in Christ. We are hidden in Christ. And that means we are protected from the opposition. But to be hidden with Christ means more than protection. To be hidden with Christ means that we are engulfed by Christ. 
Rankin Wilburn is, uh, is a pastor in our denomination who quite literally wrote the book, Union with Christ. <laughs> and as he wrote this book, Union with Christ, he offers a helpful illustration. You see, Rankin used to pastor in Los Angeles. Um, and he tells the story of one of his church members, one of his friends, who was Mickey Mouse at Disneyland. Now, not literally Mickey Mouse. The church member put on the Mickey Mouse costume at Disneyland. But he noticed something when he put on that costume that the people at Disneyland, the kids, the adults alike, came up to him and shook his hand, wanted wanted a hug because they saw in him Mickey Mouse. And he began to notice something else that as he put on that costume, he began to take on Mickey Mouse. He took on the persona of the one who engulfed him. Look, it's a cutesy illustration, I get it. But maybe it gives us a picture of what it means to be engulfed by the righteousness of Christ. To be united in oneness to the person of Christ. To represent Christ to the watching world. To live in the person of Christ, the strength of Christ, the righteousness of Christ. To be cloaked in Him. This is what it means to be hidden in Christ. He is our life and He is becoming our life. And both are true. Both are represented in this beautiful passage on union that decries what is most true of the Christian, that the Christian is hidden with Christ. But as beautiful as that truth is, there is something more than the truth of our being hidden with Christ. And that is this. Because we are hidden with Christ, We are hidden with Christ in God. So maybe the illustration that is better than a Mickey Mouse costume is a Russian nesting doll. Do you know what those are? The the little wooden dolls that uh, that is inside of another doll and then inside of another doll, inside of another doll. You take them apart and it's just a little miniature replica. But here's the thing about those Russian nesting dolls. The the smaller one that's inside of the bigger one, it's an exact replica. Except for the size. Could that be the picture of what Paul is talking about here? That we are hidden with Christ in God? You see, we've we've made reference to a passage. If If you're a note taker... Make a little cross-reference here, John 17. John 17 is is Jesus' high priestly prayer, and, and possibly one of the main themes of the high priestly prayer is Jesus celebrating the eternal union that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have existed in for all eternity, a union, a oneness that is beautiful, that is intimate, that is loving, that is perfect, And in the high priestly prayer, he says that that union that has existed from eternity past is a union that the Christian is invited into. 
that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are in perfect oneness. And if you are in Christ, you are in that union. Beloved Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God. That is the spiritual reality that Paul is telling us to set our minds upon. That this union is ours. So rest in it. It is what is most true. So the Christian must actively pursue living into that spiritual reality until the glorious day when it becomes a physical reality. But in the now, as we anticipate that day, we wait. We wait for the reality of this union, but what does that waiting look like? Well, it's expectant and it's certain. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Do do you see this movement? We started in verse 1 with an if. We we started verse 3 with a 4. And now in verse 4, it's when. When. When looks to a future time that is not in doubt. It looks forward, and embedded in that looking forward is a call to wait. Now, wait, waiting is no fun. (laughs) We don't like to wait, but we do it often. So think about that waiting, and think about what that waiting is meant to be like now. Mark Maynall is a commentator who spoke of this waiting, and he he offered a, a pretty helpful uh, illustration a way to think about waiting he, he said there's there's two types of waiting there's there's rainy day waiting and there's house guest waiting so rainy day waiting is a is a passive waiting rainy day waiting is is the child or the grown-up who wants to go outside and play but it's raining And so rainy day waiting is sitting by that window, bored, frustrated, passive. I can't go outside. I'll just sit here. But house guest waiting is not passive. House guest waiting is active. House guest waiting knows that I've got a dear old friend coming to visit, so I'm going to prepare my house. I'm going to clean up the house. I, I know what that, what that friend likes to eat, so I'm going to go to the grocery store and get their, prepare for their favorite meal. I know that game that we love to play, and so I'm going to get it out. I'm going to set it out on the table. House guest waiting is active. It is preparatory it is looking forward to the time when that house guest comes and I will be able to enjoy them house guest waiting anticipates the joy that is to come and that is the picture that we see in verse 4 we wait expectantly preparing for the physical reality that is to come But yet for many of us, this waiting is still as glorious as it is, as as clear as we can make it, it is still marked by insecurity. Practically, 
For many of us, we replace the when with an if. And that's evidenced by the disconnect that we continue to live in between what we perceive about ourselves and what is actually true. Regardless of what others see. Regardless of the gifting that others affirm, our perception tends to be what is most true because what we see now about ourselves and about Jesus is obscured. But in verse 4, Paul is reminding us that in glory, our faith will be sight. That our perception will no longer be obscured by sin. That in glory, our, the spiritual oneness that we experience now will become a physical reality. We will be with Christ in glory, sharing in His glory. And in that day, the real you will be revealed. So the Word here is telling us, in light of what will be revealed, to live today in that reality. Now, that instruction is helped somewhat by the picture of glory that we are setting our minds on and that we are referred to in verse 4. But again, there is a more helpful truth here. Because as much as we can focus on that truth, much of our current anxiety is based on an inability to take our focus off of ourself. So if we merely point to the hope of being able to see ourselves as we really are, then we really haven't changed the equation that much. Friends, in glory, the greatest joy will not be in seeing ourselves as we really are. In glory, the greatest joy will be in seeing the one whom we've set our minds upon. the risk of losing my man card, I want to take us to a certain movie for an illustration. And I'll just preface this by saying, look, Anna is out of town. She's going to be with her parents for a week. And so Stuart and I are already planning out the, the real manly movies that we're going to watch this week. Okay? But right now I want to take us to Sleepless in Seattle. That's right, a romantic comedy. Stop it. Maybe you've seen it. If you've seen a romantic comedy, you know some version of it. Uh, Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan are in this movie. They're on opposite ends of the, of the country. And through this um, set of events, they get connected. And, and they form this long-distance communication. This long-distance correspondence. And, and in time, they, they make an appointment to meet the most romantic of meetings you can imagine, at the top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day, Valentine's Night. And there's the normal set of romantic comedy twists and turns, but finally they meet. But in their meeting, there's a profound truth that actually connects to this passage, because as they meet, Tom Hanks comes up to Meg Ryan, and the one that he has long waited for. The one he has imagined in his mind, but he finally sees her. And in that moment, he can't take his eyes off of her. The movie ends as they 
awkwardly walk off holding hands and he's just captivated by her, looking at her with this this goofy grin on his face because the one that he has anticipated is finally there and in her presence viewing her. He no longer cares anything about what he's wearing or his own awkwardness. He's not focused on himself. He's focused on her. Friends, in that moment, in glory, our insecurities will be gone. Not because we finally see ourselves for who we really are, but because we finally see Jesus for who He really is. That is our hope. That is our expectancy. That is what we wait for. That will be then. And so until then, We wait knowing that Jesus is ours, that we are united to Him. By faith now we know of His glory and our place in Him. On that day we will know by sight. And so friends, the Christian life is bringing that future reality into the present. Christian, your life is hidden with Christ in God. Live in that reality now. Father, this word is it is full of truth that is too glorious for us to comprehend. And so in not being able to comprehend, would, would you simply impress it upon us? Would, would you break us out of our Our cycle, whatever that cycle may be for each of us here, would you show us Christ? Would you show us our, the blessing of our union in Him? Would you give us an ability with that vision to live it now? Do so, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.